Let's look at God's Word together. It's amazing whenever you prepare a message, and then um, the Scripture that Esther read to you this evening was the, the key Scripture that we were going to be starting off tonight with, which is lovely. Um, and it's really good when that happens because you know then that there's a bit of a flow and God is trying to communicate. And all the songs that Esther picked are in relation to what we're going to be looking at tonight. So if you go in your Bible to Psalm 89, we're going to read some verses from there again um, so that you can all hear what's being said there and not miss any of it. And thank you, Esther, for bringing that. It's a powerful psalm and a great way to start off in worship this evening. Has anyone, um, maybe some of you do know this, but does anyone know how many religions there are in the world today, as it stands? Anyone hazard a guess? Officially? Someone throw out a guess, come on. 1,000. 4,200. So that's how many official religions there are in our world today. Do you know how many gods there are in India? So-called gods colossal, in the millions. So apparently it's somewhere between 30 million and upwards, and it could even be more than that. That's how many um, gods or so-called gods that there are. And there are lots of versions of gods and God in our world. There's things that people worship and ways in which they relate to whatever is out there um, in our world today. And often you hear phrases like, all gods are the same. Basically all paths lead to God in the end. All paths will get you to the same place in the end. And I'm sure you've all heard that in conversation. You can hear phrases like that. But if you've ever heard that phrase or you hear it on a regular basis, don't you believe it? Our God, the one that we serve, the one that we worship, stands alone. He's nothing like those other millions of gods. He's nothing like any other deity that exists. He stands alone. And that's what I want to talk to you tonight about. So let's look at Psalm 89, which is what that psalm is actually talking about. Starting to read at verse 1. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord? Lord God Almighty. You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the raging seas. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. Now, that's not Rahab from the Old Testament. That's a phrase that was used to refer to a, an ancient sea serpent that represented the evil. So what the psalmist is saying, you put a stop to anything that is wicked. So that's what it's saying, just in case you're thinking, why is Rahab getting a hard time? You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours, and yours also is the earth. You founded it. I founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endowed with power. Your right hand is strong. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. That's what I was praying at the start. 
that we would be a blessed people because we would learn to acclaim and give God his rightful place in our lives. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness for you are their glory and strength and by your favor, you exalt them. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. It's a great psalm and what it's saying is there's no one like God. There's no one like our God. Let me just read a couple more passages to you, if you would. If you flick over to Exodus chapter 15, please. And as you do that, I want to read from Micah. So hopefully that's not too confusing. You go over to Exodus 15, verse 11. And I'm going to read from Micah, verse 7. Micah the prophet uses these words at the end of the book. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in loving devotion. So here you have the prophet using the same phrase. Who is a God like you? Exodus 15, hopefully you've got it. Verse 11, Moses, in the song of Moses that he sang after Pharaoh was cast into the sea, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You notice the same phrase that keeps coming up, who is like you? Who is a God like you? Now, that's a rhetorical question because the answer is in the text that no one is like our God. No one is like you, God. Our God is unrivaled in all areas of his being. We sang it there, didn't we, in our worship time, you have no rival, you have no equal. But there's something in humanity and there's something in us something we're seeing a lot of in our day that actually seeks to put us in God's place and actually seeks for us to assume this position that there's nobody like us and God gets relegated somewhere into the background, gets lost among all the gods that exist or the so-called gods exist. I'm going to read you out a few descriptive phrases, okay? And I want you to think about who are these phrases describing Now, don't say any names, okay, because someone might get very offended. So listen to these phrases. Grandiosity or grandiosity with expectations of superior treatment from other people. Fixations on fantasies of power, success, intelligence, and attractiveness. Self-perception of being unique, superior, and associated with high status, people, or institutions. Need for continual admiration from others. Sense of entitlement to special treatment and to obedience from others, exploitation of others to achieve personal gain, unwillingness to empathize with feelings or wishes or needs of other people, intense envy of others and the belief that others are envious of them, pompous and arrogant in demeanor. Now, who's that describing? Now, don't be saying, remember I said, don't say. This is actually describing a narcissistic personality disorder. It's actually a medicated condition that was described many years ago in 1925, and it's actually something you can be diagnosed with. So someone can say to you, you have this condition because you're always thinking about yourself. You're always treating other people as if they have less value than you. You're always needing affirmation. You always need people to tell you how great you are. But I could have as easily been describing most of our world today Because in our world, there's this sense of entitlement that it's all about me. 
What am I getting out of this? And, you know, people need to stroke your ego. That's really the world that we're surrounded by today. We've become obsessed with ourselves. David used this last Sunday night in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, when Paul is talking to Timothy. And Paul says to Timothy, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. And boy, are we seeing that today, aren't we, in our world? People are lovers of themselves, boastful and proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful and unholy. We humans have a tendency to put ourselves in a place that's reserved for God alone, where we love ourselves more than Him. Why is this? What is the, where does this come from? Well, this is right at the very heart of how mankind fell in the first place. Whenever the serpent came to Eve and she tempted him, she tempted or she tempted or sorry, the serpent tempted Eve with the promise that she and Adam would be like God if they ate from the tree. That was the temptation. It wasn't that the tree had good fruit on it, although it did, but the temptation was the fact that she and Adam would become like God. And they thought, we're missing out on something here. We want that which is reserved for God alone. And it's right at the core of where the fallen humanity happened. And Lucifer himself wasn't that his idea? I will ascend to where God is. I will take his place. That was what his temptation was. And this has gone right through the ages where people want to hold the position that is reserved for God alone. It's an ancient problem and it plagues us in our society today. And didn't someone sing a famous song about being proud and boastful and arrogant about the fact that he did it his way? And this is very much the song of our age to rule and to reign and be your own boss. And it's all driven by that sinful stuff in us. Now, we as Christians know better, don't we? We know better, but sometimes we behave as if we don't. And you maybe say, well, Bill, I, I don't want to be in God's place. I don't want to do things my way. I want to give God his rightful place. But folks, whenever we stress and worry and struggle about things, are we not stepping into the place that is reserved for God alone? Sometimes when we strive for popularity and influence, sometimes when we allow the praise of people to be the thing that lifts us up and the criticism to be the thing that turns us down, are we not demonstrating the fact that we don't have God in his rightful place, that we are actually in a place that doesn't belong to us? And we end up exhausted carrying weights that we are not able to carry, that only God can. We sit in the place of God over our lives and wonder why things are all falling apart. If you show me a person who understands the greatness and majesty of the character of God, and I will show you a person that is stable and steadfast through the challenges and trials of life. And you show me a person who is always thinking about themselves, and I'll see a person that is struggling and stressing and straining, carrying things that they were not meant to carry. When we have God in our minds, in his rightful place, everything else is in its right perspective. And also, and this is, I'll try to be sensitive here, but within our Christian culture at the minute, there's a subtle false teaching that has crept in whenever we're talking about God being in his rightful place and us being in our rightful place. And, it's a, and I don't know much, how much Christian television you watch or how many Christian books that you read at present, but there's things about God that are being said that aren't true. And there's things that are being said about us that aren't true. And what's happening with the desire 
for people to rise up into their God-given identity in Christ. There's an over-exaggeration of who they are and what they're capable of, and a desire to bring God down to our level and relate to us. There's this tendency to pull God down and say, actually, God isn't X, Y, and Z, that God needs us, that he would be stuck if it weren't for us, or that God really isn't in control. You know, he rules over everything, but he's not really in control. That when Jesus stepped into the world, he just stepped into it as a man, and he operated in the power of God, but he was just a man, so we can be exactly like him. Folks, whenever you hear teaching that denigrates God and exalts man, you be on the lookout, because you will be sure that there's a false teaching that's being brought in to your life. Whenever you hear anything that tells you that Jesus was any less than supreme God when he walked the earth, that's heresy. Yeah. That is something you need to run very far away from, and you need to avoid that type of teaching. And yes, we'll, we'll get into that in more detail in the future, but folks, be careful. Be very careful what you listen to, what you imbibe, what you allow into your consciousness, because it shapes you, and it shapes who you are. Whenever you hear phrases like, we are little gods, be on the lookout. Be on the lookout, because there's stuff there that's not helpful. These beliefs are attacks on the very nature of the God of this word. They're actual attacks. They're actual stuff that's seeking to destroy what God says about himself. So be very careful and contend for the faith that has been delivered to us. Look at God's word and what it says. It doesn't matter if it makes you feel good. It doesn't matter if it makes you feel nice or makes you feel important. If it's not in here, it's not true, get away from it because it will cripple your Christian life. Any teaching that puts us in the place of God encourages us to think about ourselves more highly than we ought is dangerous. And any teaching that brings Jesus down below supreme God level is heresy. And by heresy, I mean false teaching of the highest order. So be careful, folks. How is God supreme and unique? He is unrivaled in wisdom. And these are the three points, very simply, that I want to bring to you tonight. Firstly, he is unrivaled in wisdom. Go to Isaiah 55, if you would, please, with me. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Yes. Hopefully. If you don't, come and talk to me afterwards. Isaiah 55, verse 8. And we're just going to quickly look at three ways in which our God is unique and three ways that he's totally unrivaled. Isaiah 55, verse 8. Very, very well-known passage of Scripture, folks. You'll know it so well, but it's worth reading because we need to be reminded of this. God says through the prophet Isaiah to his people, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Folks, the ways in which God works is often beyond our understanding. There's people in this room that are walking through real difficult times that there's no answer for. And in times like that, we have to go back to these words where we have to submit and go, God, I do not understand this. 
I mightn't even, most of us in times like that, we don't like it. We don't understand it, but we have to submit that his ways are so much higher than ours. And I'm sure you have experienced that in your own life as you've walked through those times. What is going on here? Why is this happening? Why am I going through this? Why is this person sick? And why are we having to face this? Often, we don't even get an answer. I wish we did. <laughs> I wish in those times we could say, God, I want an answer right now. And I want you to write down exactly what's going on here. But often we don't. We get his presence and we get his comfort and his peace, but we often don't get an answer. The thing we have to understand is that God is working to a scale and a plan that we have no comprehension of. He's weaving together threads of the whole of creation and our lives play a part in that story. And we're in that story and he draws alongside us to give us comfort, but he is working to a higher plan. In the office here on Monday morning, Fiona is usually here, Beth is here, Priya is here, David the caretaker is here as well, and we often have a devotional time on Monday morning, so we open God's Word and have a chat about maybe stuff that God's been saying. Um, and on Monday, one of the groups started a conversation about the origins of evil. So it was a lovely wee tea time chat and devotional time. Where did evil come from? Why was Satan in the garden? What was going on there? And we chatted about it for a while and then got all the answers and said, see you later. Not really, that's not how it went. The conversation ended up with us all saying, holding our hands up and saying, we can't understand these things. There's no way that I, we can work this out, especially not in a tea break on a Monday morning. People have spent their lives struggling and, and talking and thinking about these things, but these things are beyond our understanding. We had to hold our hands up. See, God alone is the one with supreme wisdom and knowledge. He alone understands all that was going on. He alone knows the end from the beginning. He alone has the answer to these things. And the four of us or five of us in that moment didn't have a clue how to answer those questions. There are questions we ask when we're going through those seasons and even about some of the big things of Scripture. And we have to hold our hands up and say, God, you alone know the answer to these things. But here's the comforting truth. Our God knows every detail and every reason, every why and wherefore of every situation. He is working to a plan to bring about his glory and your good, even if you don't realize it. That's what he is working towards, and he will continue to work towards. If you're facing something that you haven't got the answer to, go to God. No one else has the stuff that you need to get you through that situation, and God alone knows. Go and ask him and spend time with him. On Tuesday here in church, and sorry for the illustrations, but it, it really struck me. As I chatted to Noel on Tuesday, obviously Noel's wife, Lauren, has been through a real challenging time, and we're just sitting down talking over lunch and talking about these different challenging moments in our lives. But we got on to talking about physics, because you know that Noel was a physics teacher, an amazing teacher. Um, we were chatting and I was asking him questions about the nucleus and about protons and neutrons and all these physics things. I wasn't very good at physics at school, but I was always interested in it. And Noel chatted to me about stuff and I was asking him about splitting the atom and how does that even happen? And it got to the stage in the conversation when Noel said, Bill, I can't even begin to explain to you those processes because you don't have the background knowledge to even have a conversation about this. 
And now, if you know Noel, he did it in a very gracious way. You know, it was really lovely about it, and I didn't feel offended in the slightest. In fact, I was really impressed that he was able to have conversations about um, nuclear power and splitting the atom, and he talked about it as if we were talking about coffee and lunch. It just rolled off his tongue because he had such a knowledge of it. But it really struck us both. Noel gets very excited about things like that because he sees the majesty and wonder of God in those things, how God himself created the laws of physics that we were even talking about. And Noel's level of understanding was miles ahead of mine, but our God's understanding was even further up into the distance above Noel's because our God's understanding and wisdom and knowledge of these things is so intricate and so detailed. And our scientists are only now discovering things that they didn't, didn't know before. Noel was saying that how things have progressed and stuff that he was teaching in school is now shown to be not quite right. And there's a different way and a better way. And our scientists are only discovering these things where God created the laws of physics itself. See, God is unrivaled in wisdom. He is unrivaled in these things. Our God is wisdom beyond measure. And here's the crazy thing, folks. From time to time, people and we ourselves stand toe-to-toe with this God and tell him that we know better. That's the, the, the totally absurd thing. When we realize who God is, and we'll stand toe-to-toe with him and tell him off. Say, God, I'm not too happy about what you did there. Should have done it this way. Should have went about it that way. And God just, I don't know, God laughs sometimes because he's so high above that. He's so high above our understanding. And I think that's what God was getting at when he had that last conversation with Job, right at the end of the book of Job, when all the speaking had been done, when all the explaining had gone on with the three friends and Job's own assumptions about what was going on and Job's wife, curse God and die, all his friends, you must have done something wrong, and all the speaking is done. And then right at the end of the book, Job stands before God, and God reams off to him all the things that he had done. Were you there when I created this? Were you there when I set the boundaries of the seas? Were you there when I had done X, Y, and Z? And the answer is absolutely not. And then Job says, my speaking is done. Because he realizes that God and his wisdom is so much further. He is unrivaled. And what does this mean for you? Well, it means submit to God's leading in your life. Submit to him because he knows best. Trust him and acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. Second thing is this, he is unrivaled in power. We read it earlier, Exodus 15, 11. Who is a God like you among the gods? Who is a God like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? We all love stories about people who perform miracles and do wonders in our day and in our time. And that's great. We love the, the prophetic types that can give you prophetic words like Andrew does from time to time. We all love that. We love how that inspires our faith, how it encourages us. We love preachers who can make us laugh and make us cry, who carry the anointing of God upon their lives. And that's all good and that's all right. But we need to be careful that we don't elevate any of those individuals into the place that's reserved for God alone. We need to be careful with that. And what do I mean by that? Folks, we are only conduits of the blessing of God and the power of God. We are not the source. We're only conduits. 
God's power, and that's such a gracious thing, God's power and God's blessing flows through every one of our lives to those around us, but the power does not originate with us. It originates with Him. He is the source of everything good. Now, that's a humbling thing, but it's also a freeing thing. Without Him, we can do nothing, and without Him, nothing gets done. If we have all our energy and all our striving and all our stressing and all our straining, if God is not in it, then nothing is going to happen anyway. We need to remember that and we need to learn that because we have a habit in our day of lifting people up into that position as if it's their power that's doing the stuff. We need to watch that. We need to watch that. There's a few instances in the book of Acts where you see how terrified the apostles are of taking the place and the glory that belongs to God alone. And just for a matter of time, you can take down the reference points and you can look at them later. I'm going to just read you the first one, just very, very briefly from Acts 3, verse 11. We know that um, there was a miracle that had taken place here. And we know that the Israelites who stood around stood in awe of what Peter had done. And it says in verse 11, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stir at us if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? And then down to verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. So it's by faith in the name of Jesus. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. They're very quick to point out that it's not their own godliness, it's not their own strength that has made this man strong, made him able to walk. He point, they point to Jesus very, very quickly. And when you read on in Acts chapter 10, when Peter visits Cornelius' house, it says in verse 24, the following day he arrived in Caesarea where Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was about to enter, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet to worship him. But Peter helped him up saying, stand up, I am only a man myself. Again, you have this, oh, Peter's here. And Cornelius falls on the ground and Peter's like, get up, I'm only a man. I'm just like you. I had a few bizarre experiences when I was in Ghana where the pastors and the leaders and the preachers were treated as if they were more than just men. And I remember it really well being, there's something, something a bit odd here. And these men were happy to receive this, oh, great, the pastor's here. The anointed man is here. The man of God is here. I'm all for respect, folks. But when it goes further than that, into that realm, into this realm that we read about here, there's something not quite right. In Acts 14 as well, in Lystra, um, you have a similar scenario where Paul and Barnabas are there and they're teaching. And what the people say is that Zeus and Hermes have come. The gods are among us because they were seeing the effects of these men's ministry. Paul and Barnabas are there and it's like, oh, the gods have come among us. They are walking among us. But Paul is very, very quick. When, or, wait, wait to hear what happened in verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things and live lives and turn to God. And then he goes on to point to who God is and the glory of God. 
These are only a few instances. There are many, many more in scriptures. The apostles were terrified of anyone attributing to them what belonged to God alone. And I want to ask a question. I wonder what the apostles would say about the celebrity pastor culture that we have in our world today. I wonder what they would say about the fact that we as individual Christians who carry the Holy Spirit in us place people on such a level that we make them nearly equal with God. Even though we don't say it, but that's nearly how we treat them because we'll go with what they say. This great teacher said this, and I'm going to do this as a result. Do you know, this great teacher told me I should do X, Y, and Z. This prophet said this over my life, and I'm going to do this. What we're doing is actually giving to people what belongs to God alone because it's his ultimate power. He is the source. He has no rival. He has no equal. And he, to him alone, belongs all the glory. And in Acts chapter 12, and hopefully this will never happen to anyone, in Acts chapter 12, you have the other flip side of it. It says in Acts 12, verse 21, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of God and not a man. And do we know what happened? Immediately, because Herod did not praise God or give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and he died. Lovely wee way to finish off your Sunday night. He was eaten by worms and he died. Horrible story. But what happened? It doesn't seem as if he did anything wrong. He sat and gave his address. The people said, this is the voice of God, not a man. And because he did not give glory to God, God struck him down. I still think that God gets angry when people don't attribute to him what is due him alone. I still think he, he is displeased when Christians walk in that, oh, look at me, I'm die great. Aren't I? the man, I'm the anointed one, I carry the power. And all the while we're portraying it as if the power comes from us when it doesn't. We're only the conduits. He is unrivaled in power. How is this encouraging to you? Maybe you're asking that question. This is how it's encouraging. Whatever you are facing, this God of unrivaled power stands on your side to help you, to equip you, it's why he's able to do immeasurably more than what we can even ask or imagine. There is nothing too hard for our God. No power of hell, no scheme of man can stop him. Our God is not locked in some cosmic struggle that he needs us to bail him out. And if we don't bail him out, then he's going to be in trouble. It's not like Star Wars where it's evil on one side and good on the other and they're fighting against each other for all time. If you're thinking that's what this is all, all about, you've got it all wrong. There is no rival to God. Satan will try to fight and he will put up a fight and he will put up as if he's strong, but he hasn't got a, a glove on our God. He is so much higher above that. He is the one who is ultimately in control and there is nothing that can stop him. We need to understand this, folks. And our tradition and our history and our background here in this church and also the stream of the church to which we belong, we have an emphasis on free will. We have an emphasis on the decisions we make. But folks, be very careful that that doesn't put you in the place of God. 
Be very careful that that doesn't, in your minds, make you think that if you don't do it, then God will it'll not get done. Our God is in control of everything. He is sovereign. We heard that word this morning, didn't we, from the platform a few times. What that means is that He is unrivaled in power, that He is in control. Whether we believe it, or we feel it, or we think it or not, He is unrivaled in power. So God goes with you. He flows into your life to help you and encourage you, and He also wants to flow out of it. But we're just the conduits, and that's a blessed place to be in, because then that means whatever change that God wants to make in His world, He wants to use you, but it doesn't depend on you. Because see, when we think it depends on us, we put a weight on our shoulders that isn't ours to carry. There's people in this room that feel in their lives as they've witnessed to loved ones, and those loved ones haven't made a decision for Christ, and you're thinking, am I a failure? Folks, when God moves and when God decides to do something, and when God wants to use you as a conduit through which his blessing will flow, then it's he, he's the one that does it, and he's the one responsible for it. We play our part, but unless God plays his part, and unless God does something, it will not get done. So don't carry a weight that's not yours to carry. Witness, serve, live your life for the glory of God, but don't carry a weight that's not yours to carry. God is the source of all power. And I'm finishing with this. Last thing, he is unrivaled in mercy. It's unrivaled in mercy. We read it earlier, Micah 7, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance, who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in loving devotion. Beautiful, beautiful passage. One I go to time and time again because it reminds me of the mercy of God. See, blessing those who bless you is easy. Forgiving and praying for those who persecute you is a divine trait. And forgiving at the level that God offers to the world is something that he alone is capable of. We love because he first loved us. And we're able to forgive because we recognize the forgiveness that we ourselves have received. And the power of the Spirit in our lives enable us to walk in forgiveness, even to those who have persecuted us and hurt us, because we know the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. David picked up on this last week and illustrated it so well. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, as he was being mocked as he hung to the cross for the ones that were actually hurting him and the ones that nailed him there. He was praying that prayer, Father, forgive them, as he was broken and beaten and being ripped apart, offering forgiveness to those who put him there. In a world where bitterness and unforgiveness are so evident, People need to hear and need to see this God who is unrivaled in mercy. People think they know something of forgiveness, but they know nothing of it until they look to the cross. A God who would give himself for the sins of the world. Not one of the 300 million or however many there are, not one of those gods ever did this. When you look at the religions of the world, there is no story like this story where a God, the God, the one true God, would lay down his life for his own creation, for the ones who were sinning against him and stood against him. There's no other story like that. It's foolishness to one. It's horrific to another. They can't accept it. This is a unique story and a unique story to the, 
Judeo-Christian faith. We alone have a story like this. And why am I reminding you of this as we come to a close? Well, I'm reminding you that our God is unrivaled in mercy because I know, I know from personal experience that people in this room are struggling with guilt. I know in this room that there are Christians who have had a, a week where they maybe haven't done the things that they would want to do and they did other things that they shouldn't have done and you're struggling. You're struggling to feel right before God. Maybe it was stuff that happened 20 years ago. And you're maybe thinking, oh, there's no way. There's no one in here like that. Folks, there are. They're Christians who carry the weight of past sins for most of their lifetime because they don't recognize that the God that we serve is unrivaled in mercy. They think that he's a God like the father or mother they grew up with. They think that he's like a partner that they had in the past that was nice one minute and then cruel the next minute. They think that he's going to be harsh like the school teacher they were brought up under. Folks, our God and the God we've been talking about tonight, this God of ours, freely you gave it all for us, surrendered your life upon the cross. This is our God, unrivaled in mercy. So whatever it is that you're holding on to from your past, from this week, even from today, folks, come to this God, receive cleansing, receive grace, receive mercy, because there is no God like him. And he will invite you and welcome you with open arms. Do not carry the sins of the past or even of the present. Run to this God. All he asks you to do is come to him and he will cleanse and forgive. And there's another side to this. There's the challenge side of it too. And this is the last scripture I'm going to use tonight. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another. This is the outworking of the love that we have received and the mercy we have received. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So with the love and the forgiveness that you have received, you demonstrate that towards others. And in so doing, you get to imitate God. Imagine that. You get to imitate Almighty God. And that's one way in which we can do that, by demonstrating that love to others. This should give you hope for tomorrow because this unrivaled God lives in your life and he's for you and he's not against you. Whatever you're facing, he has the answers to that situation. He can help you. Whenever the forces of hell, whenever the forces of your own sinful flesh wage war on your relationship with God, nothing can stand before him and he has no rival and he has no equal. So whatever you're walking into, he goes there with you. And if you need wisdom, how to raise your kids, how to be a husband or a wife, how to forgive your enemies, how to do your job, the God of all wisdom goes with you to help you in that. And best of all, God of mercy, which is unrivaled, is there to meet you at the point of your falling. So whenever you fall, and we all do, whenever you fall, you fall onto the mercy and the grace of the God that we've been talking about tonight. And I think that's the greatest of all. So go into this week with courage and strength and hope, remembering who you are as a child of God, but who he is most importantly, because our world is in turmoil. At the moment, there's all sorts of stuff going on, but our God is in control of it all. Let's pray, folks. Lord, we do thank you tonight for the truth of your word. 
and who you are. And God, I pray that you would, as Paul prayed, you would continue to open the eyes of our understanding and the eyes of our heart that we would see you more clearly. Lord, we're in a world that's filled with self-help stuff and, Lord, self-esteem stuff and all of that stuff. And we're thankful for that, Lord. But we need to be a people who recognize you, first of all, and who you are so that we can see ourselves and the world around us in relation to you. So help us, God, open the eyes of our hearts. Holy Spirit, please continue to do that. Lead us into all truth and give us more of a revelation of who our Father is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.